Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Well, I'd invite you this morning to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 38 through 42 as we continue working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been here for for several months now just just looking at each of these phrases, each of these challenges that Jesus delivers to the crowds as he explains to them what the Christian life looks like. And, And for the past few weeks, we've been looking as he's clarified what the law of God should look like as applied in the lives of God's people. Because by the time Jesus comes, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, what had happened was that this law that God had given his people had been distorted. It had been changed. It had been flipped on its head so that the religious leaders of the day were making it say something that God never intended. And in fact, as we'll see today and in most cases that Jesus addresses, they had taken and reversed its meaning entirely so that what God had intended through his law The people were actually trying to make it say the exact opposite. And so today we're going to be looking at retaliation and vengeance. When we think about this, this is a very basic instinct in the heart of every human, I think, to want to see retaliation, to want to see vengeance, to want to see justice served. It was exactly one year ago tomorrow that countless people's lives were changed forever when Daryl Brooks sped his car through a Christmas parade in the community of Waukesha, Wisconsin. You may remember seeing the reports on the news of this carnage. Six people were killed. Countless more were injured or traumatized due to his actions. This past week, you may have seen reported Daryl Brooks was sentenced for this reckless act of violence. The judge, overwhelmed by the emotional accounts of the victims, sentenced Mr. Brooks to six consecutive life sentences to be served back to back without the possibility of parole. He was sentenced to 17 years to be served back to back for each of the 61 counts of reckless endangerment that he was charged with. And in total, when the sentencing was added up, Brooks was condemned to spend somewhere over 1,200 years in prison. Now this sentence, as jaw-dropping as it seems, I think actually serves to reflect the flaws within our justice system that's inherent within any justice system. Many of the victim's family members spoke about their desire to see Mr. Brooks suffer in the same way that they had suffered. They wanted him to feel the agony That they had felt going to bed knowing that their loved ones were no longer with them. Knowing that their children had been harmed. Knowing that the images that they had seen on that night would never escape their memories. They wanted him to agonize over the the pain that he had inflicted on them. And, And I remember, I recall just last year as I was watching these events unfold. As I was hearing the reports on the news. As I was watching in real time on social media the response to this tragic act. How angry I was. How outraged I was. And I, I remember even texting some of my friends and, and having a conversation about this and you know saying things like, well, if, 
If I would have been there, if somebody could have just got their hands on this guy, you know what, what it would have been like if they could have pulled him out of this car in this moment? Because we have this innate desire to see justice done. When people commit acts of evil, we want to see them punished. And the judge's sentence reflected the desire to see Mr. Brooks adequately punished. But here's the reality. The reality is that Daryl Brooks will only ever serve a fraction of the sentence that he is due. He may have to endure 50 years of confinement out of the 1,200 that he was sentenced to. And so there's no sense in which human justice can ever punish Mr. Brooks adequately for what he did. And I think we have always intuitively recognized this. I think we see this flaw within our system of justice. Because how can you quantify murder? How can you translate years stolen from someone's life into years punished? How can you assign a number to the degree of suffering that remains present throughout the lives of those who have witnessed these horrific events? Those who have been robbed, those who have been attacked, sexually assaulted, had their loved ones murdered. How can you quantify those things? There's no way. And so in our instinctive desire for justice, in our recognition of these flaws within the system, we have often, I think, swung too far in the other direction. And we have become people that applaud vigilante justice who love the story of someone getting their comeuppance. And sometimes this has even worked itself out into ugly and awful and wicked forms of vigilantism in our own communities. You've probably studied in the South how lynchings were commonplace. These are reminders of what happens when people attempt to take justice into their own hands. When the Ugly stains of the sins in our own hearts begin to express themselves through so-called vengeance. In 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till was abducted from his uncle's home in Mississippi. He was beaten, he was tortured, and he was mutilated before finally being shot in the head and his body dumped into the Tallahatchie River. What was his crime? He dared to speak to an older white woman in a grocery store that he and his cousins were visiting. Now the Lord knew that our disordered desire for justice would often go awry and lead to vengeance. Therefore, he made provisions for justice and he placed restrictions on how severe it could be. Today, we're going to consider how that provision And Jesus' teaching here is explained to us. And so if you are able, I would ask that you stand together with me this morning in honor of the reading of the Word of God as we look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Here Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow 
from you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's once more turn to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we come before you today as people who are created in your image and therefore desire to see justice done. And Lord, because we desire justice, we are often left feeling frustrated when we know, when we recognize that justice, true justice, in this lifetime is ultimately impossible. And so, Lord, you've given us these instructions about how we are to trust in the systems that you've put in place, how we are to relinquish our own rights and how we are to hope for the restoration that you promise. Lord, I confess to you, these things are hard. I don't like some of the things that you said here in this sermon because it causes me to to act and behave and think in a way that's contrary to my own nature. But Lord, the flaw is not in what you have said. The flaw is in my own rebellious and sinful heart. And so Lord, I pray that through your word you would sharpen me this morning. That you would challenge me to, to lay aside my false conceptions. That you would help me embrace the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that the same would be true for all of us gathered here. That we would seek to be people who love justice and who seek to see it done, but only on your terms and according to your will. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As I said earlier, this teaching that Jesus delivers here in the Sermon on the Mount comes in a section of the sermon in which he is trying to clarify how people have misinterpreted his law. Remember, at the beginning of this section, at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us that he has not come to abolish the law, he's not come to get rid of God's law, the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it, to satisfy it, to correct where people have gotten it wrong, and to show us how it ought to be applied in our lives. We've seen how Jesus explains how this is supposed to look when it comes to anger and murder, when it comes to lust and adultery, when it comes to divorce, and when it comes to the oaths that we take. Here, we find Jesus doing the same thing with vengeance or retaliation. He's addressing how the religious leaders of his day had missed God's intentions and how we should apply God's standards in our own lives as believers. The first thing that we need to understand about this when we come to this text is that God's justice, true justice, justice restricts our vengeance. As I said earlier, when left to individuals, when left to vigilantism, vengeance can get out of hand quickly. When we have been wronged by someone, we want our pound of flesh. We want to see them suffer. We want to see them hurt in the same way that they have made us hurt. But God never intended His people to seek vengeance on their own initiative. In fact, we can see this when we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And right after, in the aftermath of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, when they had children... How does God respond to the very first crime ever committed on the earth? A heinous act, a murder 
fratricide, brother killing brother. When Cain kills Abel, God punishes him. He inflicts justice. He banishes him and he tells him that the rest of his life he's going to have to live with the consequences of this heinous sin. He's going to be an outcast. Life is going to be difficult for him. He's going to have to suffer the consequences. But he also protects Cain. He puts a mark on Cain that's meant to prevent any individual person from exacting vengeance on Cain. And so God shows that even with Cain, even with this murderer, justice must necessarily involve limitations, lest it become too excessive. That's what God's laws were intended to communicate when He gave them to His people. In Exodus 21, we read the passage that that this teaching comes from. In verses 23 through 25, we see this principle laid out. Here, God through Moses tells the people, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In other words, there's supposed to be a correlation between the harm caused and the punishment that's inflicted. And it's not to go beyond this. You don't take a life for an eye or a life for a tooth. You don't take an arm for a tooth. It's supposed to correlate. And he goes on to explain there in Exodus 21, we won't read all these, but there's some very specific scenarios about how people are supposed to respond to these acts of crime or these acts of violence. Moses explains that if your ox gores someone, how you're supposed to make a distinction between an ox that randomly gores someone with no provocation, with no signs of warning, versus an ox that gores someone when the owner knew that that ox was violent and could potentially hurt someone and yet doesn't do anything to restrain the ox. You see, Moses, is, as he's delivering these laws, we, we often start to glaze over in our eyes when we're reading through Exodus and we come to these parts. It's like, okay, let, let's get back to the boys killing giants with slingshots. Right, that's exciting, that's fun. I don't care what we're supposed to do, how we differentiate between an ox that gores someone that we might have had warning signs about versus an ox that gores someone that we didn't. But God is God is showing His people that there's clear distinctions to be made when it comes to distributing and administering justice. Justice must always be equal and we have to take intention into account. We have to take warnings into account. But it's important because God is teaching His people in all of these scenarios, in all of these kind of odd and quirky events that His people might have experienced, that justice restricts vengeance. We are not just free to retaliate however we please. We must never escalate a situation. The law's purpose was to make sure that if someone was wronged, that the punishment doled out to the perpetrator would be proportional. So if you cause someone to lose an eye, then your eye would be taken, but not both eyes, not anything beyond that. If they knocked out someone's tooth, then a tooth would be knocked out, but not all of their teeth, not a hand cut off. This was intended to limit 
the amount of punishment that someone could receive. If they killed someone, then yes, it would be just, it would be right for their life to be taken in exchange. And so justice puts strict limits on how we can punish the evildoer. But by Jesus' day, these laws, like so many others, had been distorted. They had been turned from a limit on vengeance to a license for revenge. God had intended cases to be tried on the evidence, or on the basis of evidence and witnesses. That's what he explains in his law. Whenever there is a dispute, you're to go to court, you're to go before officials, you're to present evidence, you're to present witnesses. A determination will be made. Justice was to be impartially handed down. But by Jesus' day, the Pharisees had adopted an unjust approach in which people were given liberty, in fact, even encouraged to avenge themselves on their adversaries. And we can see how easily this would take place. They they could point to the Bible and say, look, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So if you don't get your day in court... You go and you exact that revenge on that person. It's perfectly okay. God gives you liberty to do that. But that's never what God intended. These laws had gone from limitations on vengeance to a license for vengeance. And so Jesus comes to correct our understanding of these laws. And he does so by providing us with four practical examples on not only how we're restricted from seeking vengeance, but also how we must relinquish our own rights. Which brings us to our second point. He takes it a step further. He says justice does not only limit vengeance, generosity relinquishes our rights in these cases. You see, for Jesus and his followers, it's not just that we don't exercise vengeance. It's not just that we don't retaliate. Jesus actually expects us to be generous with those that would cause us harm. And he demonstrates this with four shocking examples. They're just as shocking in our day as they would have been in Jesus' day. (coughs) And I'll admit to you, there are sometimes things that we come across in Scripture that in my selfish, sinful heart, I sometimes want to say, Jesus, why'd you have to say that? I, I, I wish... Couldn't you have just left that part out, Jesus? It'd make life so much easier. These are those kind of verses. I don't think that I'm the only one that feels that way because people have done all kinds of Bible gymnastics to get around what these verses plainly say. But let's pretend for a minute that Jesus not only knew what he was talking about, but he meant it. And he expects his people to follow this teaching. What would that look like in our lives? Well, he tells us, his followers, that if somebody strikes us on the cheek, we should turn the other cheek to them as well. In other words, give them an open invitation to hit us again. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like getting hit in the face. It's not happened very often in my life, but I don't like it when it happens and I don't want it to happen again. If I see you coming toward me with your fist balled up and you're aggressively walking toward me like you're getting ready to hit me, I'm probably going to get ready to defend myself. Now, I'm not saying that I would do a good job of that, 
but I'm going to try. I'm going to try to prevent you from hitting me in my face. But Jesus says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, you don't retaliate. In fact, you turn around and show them the other cheek. I don't like that Jesus said that. I don't, because it's not just physical attacks that make me want to defend myself. I haven't been in in many fights and most of the ones that I have been in have either been with my brother or some friends as we were horse playing. I remember that in the 8th grade I fought my very best friend in the floor of our 8th grade science class. We had an argument over uh, which NASCAR driver was better, the one that I liked or the one that he liked. And we, I mean, we rolled around the floor kind of punching each other, you know, and after a few minutes, Mr. Gosser, our science teacher, looked down at us and said, Boys, you all done? Yes, sir. All right, you on to class. He knew it wasn't a big deal. You know, it wasn't, we weren't angry at each other. We were just, you know, as boys do, I guess. But this extends also, I think, the problem is that, that I don't like about this. It extends also to personal attacks, accusations, insults. Things like that. And let me tell you, I, I, may, I may not be much with my fists, but if you want to get in a war of words with me, then look out. Right? I, I don't need much provocation to defend myself from insults, from slights, from some sort of disagreement. If you want to disagree with me about politics or about theology or about historical events, things that I know, things that I care about, then I'm ready to go to the mat, right? I'm ready to brawl on those things. And there's been times when I haven't held back, I'm ashamed to say. I've been on Facebook typing out treatises, you know, on, on, on why somebody should think the way that I do and not the way that they think and why they're a big dummy head or whatever. But that, that, that's what really gets my blood boiling when I get to get into an argument and defend myself from attack. But you know what? I'm wrong when I do that. I'm wrong. Oh, I may be right about the argument, and normally I am. Right? I, I might win the argument. I might prove my point. But it's not worth it. Because you know what happens when you choose not to respond? When you don't escalate the situation? The fight usually dies. And your adversary will be more affected by your refusal to fight back than they would be by the most well-placed punch or the most well-articulated argument or the most stinging insult that you can muster. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of Billy Bray. Billy Bray was a Cornish evangelist. Uh, But before that, he was a fighter, a boxer. And he was well-known for his ability to lay people out. And so after he converted to Christ, uh, a, a co-worker of Billy Bray's uh, decided he would take this opportunity. And he walks up and, and he just lands a sucker punch on Billy Bray. Knowing that Billy Bray, if he wanted to, could get right back up and lay him down flat on the ground. And Billy Bray looked at this man and he says, I forgive you even as God can forgive you. Didn't swing, didn't say anything else, went right back to his work. And we're told Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us that this man agonized for days, not over 
how Billy Bray punched him back, but what Billy Bray said to him. And eventually this man himself converted to Christ because of Billy Bray's response. So you tell me what is more powerful. Billy Bray's fist or his willingness to turn the other cheek. His willingness to not retaliate. What we find is when we lay aside our rights to counterattack, to retaliate, that actually has a much more powerful impact in someone's life. The second example that Jesus gives us, the first is personal attacks. The second example where generosity relinquishes our rights is when it comes to lawsuits. Lawsuits. Jesus says if a person sues you and takes your tunic, you're to give them your cloak as well. Now, that may not mean much to you. You may be thinking, what's a tunic? Do I even have one? You know, how, how do I handle this? But the Jews would have gasped when Jesus said this. There's probably a murmur that went through the crowd. You see, the people that Jesus was talking to, they never heard of the idea of a closet or a dresser, a special spot in your house where you can store all your extra clothing. Most of them, the clothes that they owned were the ones that they were wearing. They might have one, maybe two garments extra at home if they were pretty well to do. And because of the value of clothing... Clothing could be used as a type of currency to settle debts since it was so essential. But under Jewish law, and you can go back in the Old Testament and find this, while a person could be sued for their tunic, you could sue someone and take their tunic, that was kind of the under robe that covered their whole body, that could be taken from them in a lawsuit. But under Jewish law, they could not be sued for their coat. You were not allowed to take someone's coat from them. And in fact, if someone loaned you their coat or gave you their coat as a pledge for a loan, the impetus was on you. You had to make sure that that coat was returned to them before nightfall. Because the coat or the cloak, it was a treasured possession. It protected people from the sun and the wind during the day, but at night it served as their blanket. And so without your coat, your survival could be jeopardized. And the law itself had no right to take your cloak from you. But Jesus says, if someone sues you and takes your tunic, give up your cloak as well. What the law has no right to take from you, you should be willing to relinquish your rights and give up freely. Go above and beyond. If you owe someone, if you are in their debt, go above and beyond in repaying that debt. Set aside your rights and instead be generous even to your adversary that's suing you in court. Now this is so foreign to our conception. I don't think we can really understand it, really grasp it. It would be like you're saying if someone sues you and takes your vehicle, give them your extra vehicle. If someone sues you and takes $100,000, give them $200,000. It's, it's beyond comprehension. But again, let's just pretend for a minute Jesus means what He says. He's telling us that we are to be overwhelmingly generous to those that would be our adversaries, to those that would sue us, to those that would take our possessions. We're to be generous to them. The third example would have been equally scandalous. Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two miles with them instead. 
Now you may not think that's a big deal or that's not a big deal. You may think, well, I could probably use the exercise anyway, so okay, we'll go out and go hiking a little bit. But this comes in the context of a Roman law that allowed a Roman soldier to enlist anyone in conquered territory, which would have been where Jesus is preaching, to carry their gear for a mile. So you could be out harvesting your field, you could be out building your house, and a Roman soldier comes down the road, they hand you their pack, they hand you their shield, and they tell you, I want you to walk with me the next mile down the road. Now you can imagine the abuses that might occur under this system. (coughs) Because when you're a mile removed from your house, and a Roman soldier tells you, I think you need to go another mile with me. They're the one with the sword. Right? And the shield you're carrying might be spattered with the blood of your neighbors, your fellow countrymen. So you can imagine how awful, how onerous this law would have been for the people. How much they resented this. But Jesus says, I don't want you to just go the mile that you're required to go. I want you to go two miles. I want you to go double what they require you to do. This is where our saying the extra mile comes in. Right? And sometimes we think, oh yeah, I'll go the extra mile so long as it's not difficult. But that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. He says, no, I want you to go the extra mile even when it is difficult. Even when your rights wouldn't require you to do so. Even when everything within you is screaming, I don't want to do this. He says, I want you in your generosity of spirit as my followers to do this. I want you to show them how completely different you are as a follower of mine. This is tough to grasp. This would be like telling a Ukrainian citizen that if a Russian soldier comes to their home after they bombed their city, killed their neighbors, invaded their country, cut off their power, that they have to carry their pack. They have to serve them. They have to relinquish their rights. It's hard to fathom. Finally, Jesus here says, Give to the one who begs, And do not withhold something from someone who wants to borrow from you. The idea, like with all these other scenarios, is that when someone asks us to do something that we would rather not do, if someone asks us to give something that we would rather not give, even when we have every right to say no, Jesus says, I want you to lay down your rights and I want you to say yes. We are to be generous. Even when the law, even when our own basic rights would allow us to say no, we're to say yes instead. Alex, you may want to ask people about coaching upward after this one. Let me make a clarification here, though, as we talk about these things, because I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Because as we are talking about this, you may be thinking, my goodness, that sounds like an awful society to live in. But God is not an anarchist. Okay? God is concerned with justice. And He condemns His people throughout His Word for failing to establish justice, for failing to pursue justice in their societies. And so what Jesus is describing here are principles that ought to govern our own personal
personal lives. He's talking about how individual Christians ought to live, not how society ought to be governed. Right In the Old Testament, that, that's the mistake that people had made. They were taking the laws that were dictating how society ought to be governed, and they were applying to themselves personally. And Jesus says, no, listen, as, as a personal, as an individual follower of me, you should be willing to relinquish your rights. But when it comes to the way that society is to be governed, how justice is to be administered, Justice ought to be prevalent. He says, let justice roll down like water throughout the society that its people lived in. Society and government, though, has been given the responsibility of administering justice. Government, the Bible tells us, is the one who wields the sword. The one who has the right to enact an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and so on. You and I have not been given that right as individuals. We are to not be vigilantes. So when it comes to defending the weak, protecting the innocent, preserving the rights of others, then we ought to be eager to join that fight. We ought to perpetually challenge our authorities to preserve justice and protect the rights of others. We ought to applaud decisions by the judge in Daryl Brooks's case where, where they said, listen, I'm going to prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law I'm going to administer the most severe punishment available to you that that is a good application of justice and we should applaud that and when judges don't do that we should challenge them or vote them out of office when we have ability to do so but when I am personally wronged Jesus tells me to lay down my rights now this is an important distinction to make because it means you can insult me you can lie about me. You can punch me in the face. And to the extent that my sanctification allows me to do so, I will not retaliate. Now there's a part when the flesh may take over, sure. But as a Christian, I'm supposed to fight that fleshly urge to retaliate within me. But when you threaten someone else, when you seek as a stronger person to do harm to a weaker person, when you seek to harm or abuse a child, when you seek to harm or wrong someone in this flock that I've been given charge over, then I will deploy every legal and biblical resource at my disposal to make sure that justice is done to you. It's not a personal retaliation. It's the pursuit of justice. So we set aside our personal rights and instead apply generosity when it comes to ourselves. But the Bible is clear. We can seek justice as applied and administered by the authorities when it comes to others. And even then, if a crime has been committed against you, if you have suffered physical, sexual abuse, if you have been wronged in a way that reaches the level of a crime, then you should report that. You should seek legal help where the law gives you opportunity to do so. We don't avenge ourselves, no matter how much we may want to. But when just and orderly legal recourse is available, then we do have liberty to pursue that. We don't have liberty to pursue personal vendettas. 
And how are we able to do that? How are we able to set aside our rights? Because again, if I'm honest with you, I'm saying all these things up here in front of you, but I have trouble applying them in my own life. I like revenge. I like it when the bad guy gets what's coming to them. Right? It makes me happy to see that someone who inflicts pain on other people get their just desserts. So how are we able to apply this in our lives? How can we lay aside our rights? How can we reject personal vengeance? Well, there's only one way. And that's to recognize and believe and hold fast to the truth that Christ restores our losses. Now at the beginning I told you about Daryl Brooks. A sentence of 1,200 plus years in prison will never fully represent justice in this case. He will never be able to pay a life for a life. How do I know that? Well, because we can't execute him and then resuscitate him and execute him again six times. We can't run him over with a car 61 times. Right Now, that, that's what this principle would call for. An eye for an eye. That's what he did. We can't traumatize him hundreds of times for the terror that he caused. So even the best earthly justice will always fall short of true justice. That's why as people of faith, we must trust Christ. Understanding that one day, not here on this earth, but in the life to come, every tear will be wiped away and every sin will be judged completely. There is not one wrong that has ever been done that will not be righted. Either those wrongs will have been paid for to the fullest extent by Jesus Christ on His cross, or those that have not trusted in Christ but have committed wrong will pay for those sins for all of eternity in hell. That is why hell is just. Hell is the ultimate administration of God's justice. Because in hell, every sinful thought, every sinful deed, every sinful word will be paid for by the full just righteousness of God. The scales will be perfectly balanced. There is not one sin that will escape God's judgment. In God's economy, the scales of justice will be balanced. And guess what? When we see it done, when God reveals before all of creation what sinners people are, when He casts them into hell to experience the just punishment for their sins, all of creation will stand and applaud at the justice of God. Because He is just. He is just. My prayer for you is that you will have trusted Christ before that day. That you will have acknowledged acknowledged your own guilt before God and trusted the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sins. If you have not yet done that, listen, you need to understand, you aren't going to get away with anything. We like justice so long as it's Daryl Brooks that's getting justice. So long as it's someone else. So long as it's them and not me. But when the eye of justice turns toward us, we want to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's have some mercy. The good news is God has offered us that mercy through Jesus. 
He has already paid for your sins so that if you would trust Christ, let go of your sins and embrace Him, all of your sins will have been punished in Jesus. The only way to be free from God's justice, God's wrath, is by trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection where God's justice and wrath was poured out on Him for us. But you see, God offers us more than that, something beyond just forgiveness. He offers us, ultimately, restoration. The Bible tells us that we can set aside our rights. We can refuse to pursue vengeance. Because what does God say? He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God Himself will vindicate you. What else does the Bible tell us? I wish we had time to go into each one of these passages because they're wonderful reminders of God's restoring power. The Bible tells us that God Himself prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. God will vindicate you. He promises to wipe away your tears. He promises through the prophet Joel to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. What has been taken from you, what you have been robbed of, God will restore. Jesus told His disciples, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. You see, it's not only possible for us to lay down our rights, our property, our vengeance. It's possible to do that because there's not a single thing that we can lay down that Jesus won't repay a hundred times over. Both now and in eternity. Paul says to count all that we have as loss, as rubbish, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Listen, if you count your tunic and your cloak as rubbish compared to following and knowing Christ... That's how you can give it up when someone sues you for it. If you count your own life as nothing, that's how you can willingly go the extra mile with the person that would compel you. It's how you can give what you have to someone who asks of you. It's how you can lend without expectation of it being returned. Because if you lose those things, so what if you've gained Christ? God is preparing for each of us right now An eternal weight of glory, the scripture says, beyond all comprehension. And so the question for us is, do we believe it? Do you trust Jesus enough to not answer that insult that someone lays against you because you know that God is right now preparing for you table in front of your enemies? Because you know that God will vindicate you. Do you trust God enough to give up your possessions? To be generous with your adversaries? Because you know that God will repay. You see, all of this is ultimately a matter of faith. If you have faith, you can let these things go. But without faith, without trusting in Jesus and what He's promised us, we can't. And so do we have faith? Do we believe that Jesus will restore? That Jesus will make good on His promises? On His Word? If you do then let's lay aside our rights. Let's be generous even to our enemies. Do you know 
what power that would convey in this community. When we become known as people who do not retaliate, as people who do not return insult for insult, but people who instead respond to insult with generosity, respond to attacks with love and kindness. My goodness, what an impact we would have for the kingdom of Christ. So stop worrying about the people that wrong you, the people that insult you. Let it go. Let your dreams of revenge against that person that wronged you, let those dreams of revenge die today. Instead, live freely. Live generously as Christ intended you to live. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I'll admit it is a hard word this morning. It's a word that I have trouble applying in my own life. I have trouble letting slights and insults go. Lord, forgive me of my desire to retaliate, of my desire to insult back, of my desire to strike back. (coughs) Lord, we long to see justice done in this society. We long to rejoice over just administration of laws. But we know that justice will not be perfect until Christ returns. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to put our hope and confidence in that day. And, Lord, where we have been wronged, as hard as it might be, help us to be generous. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be followers of yours that treasures all you have in store for us above whatever this world may offer and whatever people may threaten to take away in this world. Lord, if there is someone here who is not yet trusted in Christ, I pray today might be the day that they would embrace the forgiveness that He offers, knowing, God, that You are a just God and one day we must all stand before You. And on that day, perfect justice will be done. And so I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that And trust in you today while there is still time. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.